Welcome to episode 101 of the Synergen Leadership Podcast. Have you ever thought about how to take your leadership to another level? And would you like a framework to do so? Well, my name is Julian Carlin. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Synergen Group. And today's episode, we are going to answer those two questions. We're back for season three of our podcast and our purpose for the podcast continues to be the same, to raise the standard of leadership. In today's show, I speak with Brad Giles, who is the founder of the strategic planning and coaching consultancy, Evolution Partners. He's also the author of Made to Thrive, The Five Roles to Evolve Beyond Your Leadership Comfort Zone. Brad has more than 20 years experience as a serial entrepreneur, strategic planner, and leadership coach. He's twice been recognized as a BRW Fast 100 founder, an Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year finalist, and is actively involved in the Entrepreneurs Organization. He is also a core advisor and trainer for Gravitas Impact Premium Coaches and provides content, mentoring and training for mid-market business coaches worldwide. Now, during the course of the conversation, we explore Brad's book in detail. I start off by asking Brad why did he decide to write the book. We speak about the importance of accountability for both employees and suppliers. We explore the idea of the CEO being an ambassador for the organization. And I finished the interview by asking Brad about the importance of strategy and succession planning. So keep listening. As always, would really love to hear what you think about the interview with Brad Giles, author of Made to Thrive, The Five Roles to Evolve Beyond Your Comfort Zone. Happy listening. Season 3 of the Synergen Leadership Podcast with Julian Carl. Join Julian as he speaks with leaders and authors from Australia and around the world, giving you the opportunity to share in their journey and learn from their expertise and knowledge. Julian also shares some of the tools and techniques he uses as a leader, mentor and facilitator, helping you to build your leadership capability and improve your confidence as a leader. Well, thank you, Brad, for being on the Synergen Leadership Podcast. Really appreciate you taking the time to be a part of it. So the listeners have a bit of an idea about who you are. Who is Brad Giles? Well, thanks, Julian. It's great to be here. Uh, who is Brad Giles? I build great companies. Uh, that's If I was to distill down what I've done in my life, what do I love doing, what am I uh, enthralled by, it's building great companies. Uh, so that translates into normal English as to, I'm a leadership team coach. I work with leadership teams uh, across Australia and uh, also help others around the world in that capacity. So we're here to talk about specifically uh, your, your newest book, Made to Thrive, The Five Roles to Evolve Beyond, beyond Your Leadership Comfort Zone. Why did you decide to write the book? What a great question. Thank you. Uh, I, I wrote this book because I didn't want a person to have to go through what I went through as an entrepreneur, as I built businesses. Uh, so I've started six companies over my career. Uh, I go back to a very specific time in the early 2000s when uh, we were on the BRW Fast 100 list and we were growing rapidly uh, and I guess to translate that into another format, when I say I don't want people to go through what I went through, imagine a pyramid and at the bottom of the pyramid is the worker, the next level up is the supervisor, the manager, the, and then at the top, at the very top is the CEO or entrepreneur. Uh, as people escalate up through that pyramid, what, what becomes the job? What is the job of the leader at the top? And so for me, I was always trying to find a book that specifically outlined in a simple, practical and actionable format, what is the role of a leader in order to create great results and what do I actually have to do? And, you know, I'm a pretty avid reader. I could never find that book. And so, yeah, I, I wrote it so that people didn't have to go through what I went through. Well, I think you very much succeeded. I think the the book is is essentially for any senior leader. They can pick it up and they can you know read this one book, and then they've essentially got the way they can go about their leadership and management in one book. So I think you've really uh, nailed that aspect of it. Well, well, thank you. Um, yeah, I, I guess it, it took me a couple of years to write, but it's really been twenty years of of collated 
uh, observations and experiences and testing and trialing with leadership teams that's, that's taken it to, to that point. Um, but to your point, yeah, I, I really wanted it to be something where someone was struggling, they could pick it up. They might not agree with every single thing, but overall it's a simple handbook that a leader can, can read to, to, to sort of transition from being a good leader to being a great leader. So I want to start with a bit of an excerpt if I can, and it's uh, actually from page one where it says, start here. How to be effective. Yeah. That's every leader's problem. The question you're asking yourself, either consciously or unconsciously, is how can I make my potential count for the most in this world of effort? And this is the, absolutely the question you should be asking. But not in order to achieve fame for the sake of fame, nor to acquire money for the sake of money, but for the sake of usefulness in the world, for the sake of helping those you love, for the sake of benefiting society. I'm writing to those who strive and work for I've given up on those who have given up. Whether you are the president of a kid's football club, the leader of a not-for-profit, a business owner, the CEO of a billion-dollar corporation, or anyone in between, this book is for you. And I want to help you become more effective and make your potential count for more. And this book began with a simple question. What is the difference between a good CEO and a great CEO? So what's the answer to that question, Brad? Well, as a listener, what do you think? Because... Some people would say the difference between a good and a great leader uh, might come down to net profit, might come down to shareholder value or EBITDA, but I don't think so. I think that's, that's a, an initial and perhaps superficial answer, but, but what if we thought about that quite a lot deeper? You know, I think that you can get net profit and you can be wrecking the balance sheet. I think that you can get shareholder value and destroy the culture. So it's a bit more complex than that when we really genuinely think about what does great mean in terms of leadership. Um, so I've, I've, I guess through my work and observation and, and this, this book determined that there are five results that define the difference between a good leader and a great leader. Okay. And those results are a higher percentage of top performers, number one. Uh, number two is higher retention. Number three is higher productivity. Number four is consistent growth. And then number five is consistent results. So when we think about each one of those things, if we only had uh, consistent results, but we had terrible retention, maybe we don't have a truly great leader. If we had consistent results, uh, but we had terrible productivity or we had no growth or growth was backwards, maybe we wouldn't have a truly great leader. But when we look at what, what, is it, what does it really mean in terms of making our effort as leaders count for the most, uh, that's my proposal is that higher percentage of top performers, higher retention, higher productivity, consistent growth and consistent results is the answer. So when you've uh, spoken to, to organisations about those, those five results, well, well, what has been their feedback? Have they sort of said, yeah, that's, a, that's, that's, that's how we'd like to measure it? What, what do they think? Yeah, um, I would say it's, it's pretty much universal agreement. Um, and it's universal agreement when it's explained, to be fair, not initially off the bat, but generally people say that, that makes sense. Uh, you can't. You can't be defined as a great leader if you're missing one of those things. And it's, it's the depth behind it that matters. And, and, and I guess it speaks to a, a, lot of, a, a lot of the problems that we're faced with. You know what? We know what the role of a nurse is in society. We know what a great nurse looks like within reason. We know what a great electrician or a great doctor, or a great baker. A lot of the, 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 the traditional type trades, perhaps, we know what they look like, but um, what is a leader? How do we define a leader and what a leader looks like in, in greatness versus good? And, and so I think what I've found, I've spoken about it quite a bit now through the States, uh, through the United States and through Australia, uh, it's, it's, it seems to be resonating quite well. Well, following on from the five results, you also 
talk about these five roles, which I think uh, I'd just like you to run through quickly at a high level because we are going to dig quite deep into different sections of each each of the five roles. So what are the, the five roles that fall off the back of these five results? Okay, absolutely. So um, I will just uh, pretext this, if you will, with the five results come about from performing the roles, okay? So the five results, high percentage of top performers, higher retention, higher productivity, consistent growth, consistent results, are coming about because a person is actually performing these five roles. And the five roles are, number one, accountability. Um, so there is accountability for all employees and suppliers. Number two, ambassador. The CEO performs a strategic role as an ambassador. Number three is culture. A positive culture unites the team and attracts the right people. Uh, four is strategy. So the company's strategy delivers a unique and valuable position in the market that is different from competitors. And number five is succession planning. And that's key risks to the business are reduced through succession planning. There's a diagnostic um, that I've got within the book that really asks you questions about it. The book is effectively a large handbook or a large tool, for want of a better term. Uh, it's designed to be uh, simple, practical and actionable. My point is that each of the items within the book correlate uh, to uh, a, a measurement on the diagnostic and that measurement tells you how you're performing on each of those five roles and therefore how you would be performing on those results. And finally, where your opportunity is to become a better leader and transition towards great. Yeah, and I think it's a, it's really useful the way the book's actually structured because with each one of the five roles, there's essentially the five key points which, which people can, I suppose, diagnose themselves against, evaluate themselves against. And I'd imagine that you know, people are probably when they do that, they're probably finding a, a couple of gaps in the in your checklist. I mean, that's the you know, that's the the basis of any improvement, isn't it? It's it's the delta. You know, the the opportunity lies within the delta. One of the key things in the book is this this internet meme, which is uh, where the magic happens. So imagine two circles that don't touch each other. The first circle on the left says. Uh, your comfort zone, and then the second circle on the right says where the magic happens, and they're not touching for a reason. You need to get outside of your comfort zone to go out where the magic happens. And it's a bit of a silly internet meme, but it really does speak to what we're trying to achieve here by by understanding the, the gaps, the things that you're not doing, which is really, as leaders, what we all want to do, uh, we're able to then push toward that greatness. And I think you also make a really useful point where in the, in the, in the, the section, you know, how to actually use the book, you talk about the importance of that someone doesn't have to start at the first point. They need to start at the, the part which is most relevant for them and then to focus on getting that one bit done and then move on to some of the other 25 tools. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I'm a... I'm a big fan of, of a simple concept, which is, this is best practice. How do we get best practice to work best in this organization or whatever your organization is? My point there is, is that whilst this is highly prescriptive, how you do it is, is determined best by you. But I'd also add um, that the whole project has been planned so that you can reverse engineer it. And what I mean by that, for example, imagine if you have a problem with productivity. Okay, I don't want to get too complex, but if you have a problem with productivity, uh, you can look at the two linking roles which feed productivity, which is strategy and culture, and then you can begin to know where to work in that area. Equally and opposite, for example, if you have a problem with having higher retention, so if you've got retention rate issues, uh, as a leader, you can focus in on the ambassador role and the culture role, and there's 10 tools around each of those uh, that, that you can work on to try to ultimately impact in a positive way your retention rate. So, yeah, it's, it's designed to, um, to start wherever you feel is the most appropriate, but equally and opposite, uh, you can reverse engineer it. Finally, a quick word on that. If you've got no idea where to start, I'd go to Jim Collins, who said start with culture every time. So get the right people on the bus 
that's how I would close that part. Well, we're going to explore quite a few of these uh, 25 uh, points in your book. And uh, I, because I think there's a lot of value in, 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 in hearing your perspective on each of those. And I want to start with within the accountability role, this idea that you know, we should all be making sure that we've got accountability in place for all employees and suppliers. So can you talk a little bit about why that's such an important thing to do as a leader? In my humble opinion, accountability is the greatest source of misery in the workplace. It's a pretty interesting and bold statement, but let me try to back that up. Where does misery in the workplace come from generally? It's because an employee's expectations are not the same as the employer's expectations. So let's dig a little bit deeper into that. Let's ask a, a, a hypothetical leader, what is your definition of success for employee A's role? Think about every single thing that defines success in that person's role and then step into the employee's perspective and say, so what does success look like in your role? Those two things are going to have a huge mismatch, okay? So, so what we want to do is to ensure that there is accountability in that sense, but we can only create accountability if the employee understands the expectations of the leader's definition of success to the point that it's not possible to misunderstand. Now that's of course across productivity and culture, uh, the the quantitative and the qualitative, uh, but how well does a leader explain what they're trying to get an employee to do what their definition of success in the employee's role is to the point that it's not possible for them to misunderstand. So uh, bridging that gap or reducing that delta is so important uh, because what that does is that that reduces the misery. And by the misery, the misery occurs because the employee doesn't know what to do. It's as simple as that. Uh, the tool that we talk about there is capable, understand, want. So how capable is the employee of performing the role to the leader's definition of success? How well does the uh, employee understand how to succeed in the role? Uh, and how, well, how much does the employee want to succeed in the role? So I'd speak specifically about understand because that's completely within the leader's power or within the leader's influence. Um, so once we establish that and we've strongly established that, that the person understands, only then is it not hypocritical to actually hold the person accountable to the expectations of the role. So I um, ensure that the person understands to the point where it's not possible for them to misunderstand the leader's definition of success. Uh, B, hold them accountable. Um, because if you don't hold them accountable, they think that you just don't care. I was particularly interested in another one of the, the, the points you mentioned in the accountability role, and it's this idea that all employees report to their peers weekly on the two KPIs which define their role. And I thought this was interesting because uh, for two reasons. One, because you're suggesting they report to their peers. And secondly, because uh, you talk about the two KPIs. So in the work that we do, I think a lot of the leaders we come across would, would struggle to do this. Why would they struggle to do that? Because I think uh, in our experience, number one, their, their peer relationships are probably not where they need to be. And secondly, yep. I think a lot of leaders struggle with clearly articulating those KPIs. What are they really being held accountable to and accountable for. And it gets to your point just before, are they, do they actually understand what they're accountable for? Yeah. So the overview in terms of context is this is, there is nothing beyond great. Okay. Um, and what I mean by that is this, all of this stuff is not easy. This is, you know, you can't build a great company in one day. It's just not possible. This is, this takes a long time. Uh, and, and there's a lot of challenging work, but the rewards are there. The, you know, um, the, the original statement from the first page that you read out before is, you know, how do we make, uh, how do you make your effort count for the most? Um, so, yeah, it's, it's definitely not easy. People, people would definitely struggle with it. In terms of 
accountability in terms of the original question. So all employees rep report to their peers weekly on two KPIs which define their role. So this comes from the work by Patrick Lencioni. Patrick Lencioni, uh, most famous for the five dysfunctions of a team. Why is it more important to have people report to their peers? Now, this is 1.2 and not 1.0 or 1.1 because we want to obviously initially or first off ensure that people uh, understand the expectations of the leader to the point that it's not possible to misunderstand as I just said but once we do that if we can create uh, an accountability of uh, pardon me an environment of peer accountability it is so much more powerful compared to uh, one where uh, people are only accountable to the leader it's certainly not easy, but certainly in the teams that I have worked with, we've tried for many years to do that and it, you can't do it immediately. But little by little, you can get small wins here and there and do that. Uh, the go-to, as I've already said, is not me. Um, it's Pat Lencioni. He's, he wrote The Five Dysfunctions of a Team. And, and that, really, that, highly, uh, well, that really illustrates why it's so important. Again, and, and that is because in an environment of peer accountability, it's, it's a different conversation when your peers are saying to you, so you said you were going to make 100 and you made 70. What's your plan, number one, and what can we do to support you? You, you can imagine that's a very different culture and environment, but very conducive to a great environment and very conducive to a highly accountable environment. And you mentioned about just then the, that it, it takes time and it takes work. How, how have you gone about distilling it down to two KPIs? Because quite often the organisations we work with, people have many more than two KPIs. And as a result, I don't think they actually deliver against most of them. But how have you found being able to dilute it down to these, these, these two KPIs which define their role? What a great, what a great question. Okay, so I want you to imagine a seek job advert for people who are outside of Australia, an online job board advert. And on there, this, this advert says, this is how great our company is. And this is the KPIs that you'll be accountable for. And it's got 10 or 15 KPIs. That's great. Uh, so which of those KPIs, if I fail on, will I be fired on? Will I be fired for if I fail? And which of those, if I succeed at, will I get a promotion for. You can't do every single thing. Um, what, what really, really matters in this role? I, I think it's such a misnomer. It's, it's such a, a, a fallacy in this world where, where we expect people to be measured against all of these KPIs. And that looks great in theory, but we know every single time when it comes into practice, it just doesn't work. Um, so therefore, uh, as a leader, so a leader should be saying, well, what really matters in this role? The, the simplest role, of course, is sales. Uh, you need to produce a certain dollars of gross profit, for example, uh, uh, as a salesperson. Not every role is that easy, obviously, but um, we want to try to drill it down as much as possible to, to what really matters because what really matters is where the person should focus their energy. People can't focus their energy in every single direction. In the accountability section, you also write and uh, suggest this idea that internal and external employees and suppliers who do not consistently perform are rapidly removed from the business. Yeah. And what do you think about that, Julian? <laughs> As a person who works with leadership people. Turning into an interesting interview, Brad, turning the scales on the interviewer. I like it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> my experience tells me that we don't remove poor performers quickly enough. Uh, if I think about my own experiences, you know, leading, um, thinking of one experience in particular where I was leading a sales team, I would always be questioning myself and suggesting, oh, I'll just give them one more month, one more month, because I'm sure they do it, because I'm essentially a nice guy and, and all that sort of stuff. So I think we don't in Australia actually do it as quick as we should. So I was, I was pleased to see it. Uh, in in your book, yeah. Well, there's a couple of reasons. So, why do we even have the accountability section? I just want to take one step backwards. Okay, so there's a concept by a guy called Max Ringelman. He developed in the 1890s, a long time ago, called social loafing. And what that really says is that every time you add a person to a group, 
you expect the performance of the group to remain the same. But in actual fact, every time you add a person to a group, the performance reduces by between five and 10%. So that means that if we had a group of eight people, we're expecting, for example, the force exerted to be, according to Ringelman's study, to be about 65%, but in actual fact, it's about 30% force exerted per person. Now that translates, it's been subsequently proven into the animal world, into all sorts of human endeavors. The best way to put it is, if you were at a birthday party and you're gonna sing happy birthday, one person's gonna be yelling from the rafters, one person's gonna be barely mouthing the words. Okay, so having established social loafing, let's come back to, to this. People are not all producing the same effort, okay? Step one, um, how, do you, how do you build a great business? Uh, there is no other way than have great people. There is simply no other way. You've gotta have great people to build a great business. Okay, so then we step on to the next point, and that's really interesting because I agree with you. Uh, people are reluctant to, to fire people. We have a, a legislative framework in Australia that is, is fair. I don't disagree with it, it's fair. We need to give people the opportunity to improve, but people don't take action when people are failing. Okay, now the easy, the easy answer to the question is, oh, so, you've got to take action because that means that you won't have people who aren't performing hanging around. But the kicker, the real problem, right, is that your top performers, the people who are putting in the most effort, the people who are producing the most results are looking at you and they're saying, well, you know, you just don't care. I'm the one that's carrying the can here. I'm the one that's, that's, I'm the one that's producing three times as much as that person over there and, and you're not even holding them to account. You're not even talking to them. So there's two reasons. A, clearly, if a person isn't performing, you need to take action. And, and, and from, in my experience, is clearly similar to yours, whereby you, as a leader, I waited much too long to take action and to fire people and to put people on performance management. Um, but B, your inaction is costing you a lot more than you think because the top performers are looking at you and they're, th they're taking one step towards the door every time you don't take action. Yep, couldn't agree more on that one. Moving into the, the ambassador role, I, th I, th I thought there was a, this was interesting because you suggest that the CEO performs a strategic role as an ambassador. And I was thinking about the CEOs that I know, that I've worked with, that I observe. I don't know if, if a lot of them see themselves that way. Yeah, that's really interesting. And this has been, this, there's been many, many interesting points through the book. Uh, this has definitely been one because it's got a highlight as one of the top five roles. So let's think about it for a second. So, so the, the word ambassador comes from the Latin word ambactus, which means servant. Okay, so, so this is ambassador in the context or the context isn't lost here for the original meaning of servant but let's remember originally the the one of the key primary concepts of the book is don't do other people's jobs right you've got to do your job as a leader don't do other people's jobs so uh in that context it, you're not doing the person's job you're acting as an ambassador and they people may not see themselves that way but if they don't do the ambassador job, then who else will? The ambassador job is really important. The, the role to, to be the face of the company is really important because you can't be the head of the company without being the face of the company. The irony is that many leaders expect their employees uh, to be an, a positive ambassador for the company, and yet they don't do the same thing themselves. Yeah, and, and I... I think it, to me, it comes across quite clearly on my LinkedIn feed. If I review my LinkedIn feed, there, there's not a lot uh, coming out from what I'd call industry leaders. There's a lot more yeah. coming out from uh, smaller businesses, people trying to use the platform as a way to grow the business, which you know, I do as well. But there's not a lot of industry yeah. leaders sharing their thoughts, views, uh, opinions around around leadership and I thought that was particularly interesting because you also write the CEO has a system to build a public profile such as industry forums industry leadership blogging or speaking 
I don't see a lot of industry leaders doing that of large organisations. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? And yet when you think to examples of people that do, the, the positive impact that comes from that, now this is not only to boost their, their ego. One of the, the, the foundational pieces in the ambassador section is that ego is the enemy uh, from Ryan Halliday, uh, a, a book. Uh, ego is the enemy of everything that you want and everything that you do. Um, it's, you think that the enemy, right? You think the enemy is your ex-wife or your ex-husband or your ex-business partner. No, the enemy is within and it's your, en- it's your ego. Okay, so with that, this is not to boost your ego. This is an ambassadorial role that no one else but the leader or a department leader can do. Uh, and so it's, it's, a, it's a really, really important job. Okay, why is it important? Because business is all about trust. The, the data tells us that the trust in a business is directly correlated to the public's trust in the leader. Uh, so if you don't have a system to build trust, you will ultimately be negatively impacting the public or the, the customer's trust in the business and therefore uh, also negatively impacting the business. I think it's a real a real gap which I believe needs to be addressed because you, you think about where, where the, where the thought leadership is coming around leadership. And a lot of it's not necessarily coming from the, these leaders of these large organizations that are, that are in the field that are doing the day to day. And I think they, I almost get the sense that what you said is exactly right, that they don't think it's their role to do that. I think it's their role to, be the CEO or be the GM or whatever their role definition is, but that doesn't seem to extend out to the, the, the public profile, the, the sharing the, the good news stories about what the business is doing or, or their views on leadership. Yeah. And, and to that point, I, I want to be really clear what I, about what I said before, right? So um, this is about, uh, or the question to be answered is, if this is best practice, how do we make best practice work best in this environment? So if you're not comfortable writing a blog, don't do it. If you're not comfortable um, doing public speaking, then don't do it. But there is still an ambassadorial role to be undertaken. It it, it must be within the comfort of the, the comfort of the leader, not necessarily the comfort zone, but you know, it must be within the confines of your personality, but, there is still an ambassador, important ambassadorial role um, because that's going to activate pride. That's going to activate trust. And, and that's really what we're trying to do through the ambassadorial roles, to activate pride and trust through employees, suppliers, customers, other stakeholders. In the work that we do, I think a lot of organisations sometimes find it challenging when we talk about their organisational values and importantly, uh, how those values get embedded in an organization. So I really liked it when you wrote that uh, all employees learn core values and core purpose stories monthly from the CEO because I, I, I hadn't heard that approach before as a way of embedding the, the, the organizational values. Well, this remember, this is a part of the ambassador role, okay? Uh, so it's, a, it's, a, it's an example of the, the ambassadorial role. And, and why stories? Um, so there was a study done in 1969 where there were 10 words. I don't remember exactly what those 10 words were, but there were 10 words uh, and uh, a group was asked to recall just the 10 words by repetition. And then second, those 10 words were embedded into a couple of sentences uh, written as a story. And the difference between the two was 13%, one, three, versus 93%, nine, three. Um, so that is only a statistical example that, that is evidence that the human brain is hardwired to remember stories. Okay. So uh, in the work that I do with clients, uh, I actually ban acronyms. Uh, I, I, I simply won't let clients do use acronyms because it's not about the repetition. It's about the, the use of the core values in action that, that matters, that it's, it's what the value means and stands for. And why the, why the CEO in an ambassadorial role? Best practice is five to seven, according to Jim Collins, core values. Okay. So 
uh, people respect what you inspect. So as a leader, if what you inspect or what you talk about a lot is core value stories, the, the, the five to seven behavioral expectations or things that the leaders hold bone deep, well, that's really going to be what the most of the employees are, are going to pay attention to. Why? Because people respect what you, you inspect. So this doesn't, this is not something that needs to take a lot of time. But again, all employees learn core values and core purpose stories from monthly from the CEO. Let's say half an hour per month, um, depending on the size of the organization, it could be in person or via video or uh, whatever it is. It doesn't need to take a long time, but it does need to, to single out um, the best core values and core purpose stories, um, which is equally activating the pride of employees. Talk about culture, which is the, the yep. third of the roles. And one of the, you start off by talking about that a positive culture unites the team and attracts the right people. In your experience, have you found that organisations struggle to develop the culture, define the culture? Has it been more of a deliberate process or has it become more organic? What's your experience has been around that? Every company has a culture. Some, some companies don't accept that they have one, but we want to consciously build a culture. If you want to, if you, you want your impact as a leader to have the highest, uh, or if you want your effectiveness to count for the most, if you want to, to, to really make a positive impact and be a great leader, you, you have to consciously build a culture. I think that culture moves at glacial speed. Um, sometimes it moves a little bit faster. You can, let's say, fire three terrible uh, or people who are completely misaligned or actively working against the culture and improve it. But yeah, it takes a long time to, to, to turn around and build a great culture, but the fish rots from the head down. So the, the, the leader must be the right role model for the culture. So the, the, in terms of being the right role model, what we're, what we're trying to do um, is to think that every single person in the business has a beginning and a middle and an end. They will start and they will leave every person. Um, the job of the leader uh, or the job of a leader in an organization is to, to cultivate people while you're their custodian. You're the custodian of that portion of their career. How can you make it um, positive and impactful? Uh, how can you make it really matter? And, and I use the word cultivate specifically uh, because again, the word cultivate is the original, that, that's where the word culture comes from. It's from the Latin word to cultivate. And as part of that, you talk about the need for a qualitative and a quantitative system of feedback between all employees and leaders. I was particularly curious about this because I've come across so many different systems, models, views, perspectives on, on feedback that I was really interested to sort of, you know, hear where, hear where you believe best practices in terms of the feedback. Yeah. So have I. And, and some of them are so incredibly complex and expensive and large. Um, you know, I, I, I'm a big fan of how can we, how can, you know, it's easy to make something complex, but how can we make it simple? And, and, and when we make something simple, it's more likely to stick. So why do we need to have a qualitative and quantitative system of feedback? Now, this has been a, uh, an interesting point. Okay. Uh, interesting point because the tool that's in this section, I've had several people come to me and say, look, I think there's a typo here. Uh, and I say, no, no, there's definitely not a typo. Uh, what we're saying here is that the employer, the manager, the leader needs to give feedback in a one-on-one -on -one situation to the employee, qualitative and quantitative, and equally and opposite, the employee needs to give qualitative and quantitative feedback to the leader or manager. Okay, that sounds hard. Um, but let's go back to things like um, what we we're talking about before with Pat Lencioni, where we've got um, accountability uh, between peers rather than between uh, leader and employee. Um, we're, we're trying to build an environment of trust. So why do we want to have this, this feedback loop, uh, this two-way feedback loop between employee and employer or employee and leader, it, it, depending on the situation? A bit like a mini 360, you might call it. Well, there was a study that was done, HBR case study 
I think it's something like why employees hate the negative feedback that you love to give. I've probably said it wrong. It was by Zegner Folkman, I think it is. And, and they identified that people are twice as likely to want negative feedback compared to positive feedback. Okay, I'm just going to say that again. People are twice as likely to want negative feedback than positive feedback. Um, so negative feedback in the context of constructive feedback, how can I do my job better? Uh, so yeah, it was almost double. So people were half as likely, or it, it, it's on a scale of 10 to prefer, 10 to avoid, okay? So the lowest score is that people don't want to give negative feedback. That was like, I think it was like minus 2.3. And then in terms of receiving negative feedback, it was positive 4.7. So it's almost, it, it's, it's almost four times the amount receive negative feedback compared to give negative feedback. No one wants to give negative feedback, but everyone wants to receive it. So what we need to do is to build a system where we can uh, get employees and leaders into a simple 360 type environment with just the two of them where they can, they are forced to give negative feedback or constructive feedback. Tough conversation saying to my leader, how can my leader be a better leader? Uh, that's tough. That's, that's a very difficult conversation, but it's one that we want to build and we want to build trust based around that. Well, it very much hinges on trust, doesn't it? Without that, there's no way known the employee is going to feel comfortable to be able to say, hey, boss, this is what I'm thinking, this is what I'm feeling. I definitely agree. I definitely agree. But this is not about building good. This is about building great. Um, and it might take a year or three years to get to the point where we could implement this, for example. Um, but uh, this is really, it's an example of best practice, put it mm. that way. So you talk about uh, the ideal employee and that their needs are identified and the employee promise is helping to attract the best employees at the pay you offer. Are you able to dig a little bit into that for us? I think everyone will agree that there is a war for talent. Okay. I'm going to go back to a statement I made before, which is you can't build a great company without great people. Okay. And what I think what every employer in the mindset of recruiting wants is they want to get the best employees. They want to get, let's say, for example, the top 10% of available employees at the pay rate that you offer. That's, that's the gold standard in terms of recruiting. So if we walk backwards from that, if to use an analogy, if, if you want to find a needle in a haystack, the best way is with a dirty, great big magnet. Okay. Uh, you can sift through, but you want to have a dirty, great magnet, something that will attract the best people. So if there is no substitute for having the best people and we want to build a magnet, what does that magnet look like? Well, that magnet looks like in your organization, what does the ideal employee look like? Um, so getting a really deep understanding of what that person looks like. Uh, and, and to that point, what I mean is, what is the needs of that employee? What does that person have an innate need for uh, and then building a what's called employee promise around that you may have heard the phrase brand promise uh, well this is the opposite of that uh, brand promises outside the employee promises inside so what we want to do is to understand the needs of uh, the employees and build a, a, a promise that we can stick to a, around that and you you Support that by suggesting that the employee promise KPIs are measured weekly. And I really like this bit. Performance is displayed all around the business. Yeah. Why do you like that bit? I really like that bit for a couple of reasons. Mainly because I'm a, I'm a typically quite a, quite a visual person. And uh, at the start of this year, uh, we had a we had a merger with another small business, and the other small business that we merged with, they were very strong in in lean and productivity improvement. And one of the things that uh, their director has been very keen to explore with us is the idea of is turning performance into something visual, which is literally on the walls of our office, where people can see it, where people can talk about it, where things aren't hidden and it, it's something that I really want to 
try to look at for us as a business in 2020. And so when I, when I read it here, uh, I thought, Matt, well, we, we've got to talk about that. Yeah. Trust. So, so a positive culture is, is built on trust. Okay. So stats from the book, 80% of employees trust their industry sector more than they trust their employer. Okay. And of the 20% who trust their employer more than their industry sector, it was only by a 3% average margin. Uh, that's from the Edelman trust barometer. So if we actually just think about that for a second, so employees want to trust their employer. Okay. But we don't give them any reason to. So how do we build trust? We build trust with uh, authentic data around what we're promising them. I would propose uh, that you've probably seen a lot of examples where employers have made promises to employees um, that haven't eventuated. And every single time you do that, you're impacting your productivity in a negative way and you're impacting your retention in a negative way. Uh, every single time you make a promise that you don't fulfill as a leader, again, you're negatively impacting productivity and retention. And, and so... We want to, A, in the previous question, we want to uh, understand our ideal employee and make them a promise that, that is unique and measurable and meets their need um, that we will deliver on. And then B, we want to uh, make those promises public. We want to uh, announce or, or, or to make the KPIs around that um, public so that people know that we're, we're fulfilling our promises and thereby... Um, building the trust in the organization from an employee-employer perspective. So I want to talk about strategy now. It's an area which I'm particularly interested in. And, and, and you suggest that a company's strategy needs to deliver a unique and valuable position in the marketplace, which is different to the competitors. And when I speak to organizations about how they are different to their competitors, quite often it's, it's, it's very challenging for them. Yeah. So why, why is it challenging? So when I talk to, talk to these leaders, they, number one, quite often can not really articulate the strategy in itself. Quite often there's an assumption there that I think this is where we're going. If I think I know where we're going, I'm not quite sure why we're going there, but sort of being filtered down. So there's certainly a disconnect between fully appreciating what the strategy is and, and knowing how it's going to be executed. So that's probably the first part. And then when I start digging deep and talking about the, the, the points of difference between them and their competitors, again, it becomes, well, we do similar type stuff. So, you know, you know we've got a slightly different pricing model or, We've got, you know, we've got better people and I, I don't, I and don't, don't think believe that's enough. It. Yeah. I don't think that's enough anymore. <laughs> no, it's not. What's the job of the leadership team? Uh, like that's a, that's a fascinating question. I don't want to spend all day on this. Right. But, but the job of the leadership team is to build and execute a strategy that increases shareholder value and, and uh, profits. So, you know, like that, that in itself uh, can only occur through, through uh, differentiation. So to your initial point, um, that statement comes from Michael Porter, arguably the uh, number one thinker on strategy in the last century. And that is a company's strategy delivers unique and valuable position in the market that is different from competitors. So, so that is the definition of strategy, certainly in my world. Uh, the, the job of the leadership team is to discover how to be different across two axes. Firstly, what we do and second, how we do it. So the more different that we can become on the axis of what we do and how we do it, the more different we are uh, from the standard commoditized market. And that represents increased differentiation and therefore higher shareholder value, higher business value, higher profit ability. So the, why does that problem occur? 
because the leadership team, when they come together, you know what they talk about? They talk about operations. They talk about, oh, we've got this project happening in the Hunter Valley or this project happening in Queensland or whatever it is. And they're only talking about operations and they're not talking about strategy. Um, so the whole of the strategy section is is designed to say the, the, the CEO or the leader, depending on the, the organisation or the position, the leader needs to own a system which is that of strategic thinking uh, and the to the first point uh, quarterly and annually the leadership team might meet off-site to reflect evolve the company's strategy and set priorities uh, that's that's a, a really good part of it so i don't know if you're familiar with stephen covey's seven habits of highly effective people yes yep so he's got a time management matrix and without uh Visual, I'll, I'll quickly explain, there is an important axis and there's an urgent axis. So um, most leadership teams are spending themselves in what's called quadrant one, which is important and urgent when they come together, operations, and instead they should be spending most of their time in important and not urgent, which is strategy. So that is designed around strategic thinking, strategic thinking defined as uh, the ultimate goal to deliver a unique and valuable position in the market that is different from competitors. Yeah. It's, it's interesting when, when we train, uh, cause we use Covey's Covey's matrix in some of our sessions and it's really interesting that so much time is spent in that, that quadrant one and just nowhere near enough time in quadrant two. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But that comes back to the original question. What's the job of the leader? They don't, you know, the dirty little secret is that they don't know what to do. They, you know, in my experience, I don't know what to do. I've come across a lot of leaders who don't know what, they don't really know what it is. So they need to have a system where they're spending their time in quadrant two. They need to, to, to do that. And they think we're too busy. We haven't got time for that. But that goes back to Kobe's uh, story about the ax where the person goes into the forest and they say, uh, see a person who's exhausted chopping down a tree. And he says, so uh, what are you doing? I'm chopping down a tree. Oh, so why don't you stop and sharpen the axe? And he says, I haven't got time to sharpen the axe. And he's been there all day, of course, with a blunt axe. But yeah, it's about spending time in quadrant two. That's really what strategy is. And, and it's, it's not going to produce instant results, but it's absolutely what leadership teams should be doing. Mm. The, the final point I want to talk about uh, in the strategy section was the idea that... Uh, the ideal customer needs are identified and the brand promise is helping to attract the best customers in the market. It's interesting at the moment, I, I get a sense that a lot of organizations are feeling that the market is quite flat, regardless of which industry sector that they're in. And so I think there's a lot of focus on, on customer. So my question is around how do, how do businesses really start to identify what these ideal customer needs are and then how do they attract the customers to them? So, I'll push back a little bit there. And what I'll say is the market is flat for commoditized businesses who spend their, whose leadership team spends their time in quadrant one. Uh, when the leadership team comes together, they speak about operations. They don't talk about strategy. That's a fairly controversial statement, but I can take any uh, pushback on the chin. So what's an example? Officeworks. Okay. So what do Officeworks sell? They sell pens and they sell paper and they sell some computers. This is all highly commoditized stuff. But when, when, if we were to analyze retail generally, we would say, oh, look, retail's doing it really, really tough. But Officeworks, as a simple example, most people on the call would, would know, you know, they've carved out uh, a unique and valuable position in the market. They've, they've done a good job of that. They've, they've worked hard on their strategy to, to get there. The challenge for commoditized businesses is... How do we step out of the day-to-day, -day, understand our core customer and begin to carve out that niche? That's the, whole point of, that's the whole point of strategy. But every business can, can understand that if you try to be everything to everyone, you end up being nothing to no one. So who is the person that will pay the most for your product or service? Who is the, the, the person um, where you can add the greatest value. And, uh, and, and that, that may be niching, uh, but every business is different. But th that's, the job, that's the job to be done, is to understand where can we make a really big difference and, and pursuing that. So the, 
the brand promise as discussed, understanding the core customer, understanding their needs, it balances off against the ideal employee. So if you can ma- imagine a teeter-totter or a seesaw, in the centre is a company's core purpose. And then at one end, we've got the brand promise, which is the ideal customer and what we're promising the ideal customer. At the opposite end, we've got the ideal employee and what we're promising the ideal employee. Now, what we want to get is is to have that balanced, okay? To have that teeter-totter, that that seesaw flat. And what that means is that it's not weighing one way. And what I mean by that is by promising and delivering what the ideal employee needs, delivering that through fulfilling our core purpose and then uh, taking that through to the brand promise, which meets the core customer's needs, uh, that's how we build a sustainable business. So I'm curious about succession planning and my, my curiosity comes from the, the perspective of with the organisations that we work with, they will all say to me when I ask the question about succession, they will all say to me pretty much without fail, yes, we need to do some succession planning. And I ask them, have you done it? Do you have a process, anything like that? And they, and they invariably say no. So it's almost as though they, they know the problem's there, but they, they, they don't know how to deal with the problem. Yeah. And you suggest that key risks to the business need to be reduced through succession planning. So can we talk about that? So succession planning, let's just quickly define that uh, for listeners. This is not about your family legacy. This is uh, understanding the risks to the business and mitigating against those. And we'll clarify that a little bit further, but just to, to quickly um, isolate that. So um, in the work that I do with leadership teams, there's a question that I've been asking for, I don't know, 10 years, okay? And that is, how many consecutive months have you exceeded your revenue and profit goals? And it's a really interesting time because this is the time when the eyes look to the floor, people put their hand on their head and they kind of look away and, you know, it's not very often. Consistency is is not very often. And when we look at the when we look at the life day to day of an entrepreneur, let's say in the mid market space or, or as in a growing business, you know, it's a bit like a roller coaster. And what I mean by that is, one month we're making uh, break even. Next month we're making a lot of profit. Then we're, next month we're back to break even. Then we're losing money, and then we're back to to, to sort of break even. So it's just going up and down and up and down. And the problem is, is that this is not really very good for your health. Okay. And it's not good for your family and it's not good for your wife or your husband. It's, it's, it's not a healthy place to be. Um, So through succession planning, which to our earlier conversation is completely in quadrant two, uh, we want to try to build consistency uh, in our growth and consistency in our results, okay? And that really, you think about it like an insurance policy, okay? Uh, So how can we um, mitigate the risks uh, uh, around people, products, services, suppliers? Uh, How can we mitigate all of those risks to try to ensure that we're not going to be upset or they're not going to make, they're not going to cause us to drop revenues or drop profit or impact GP or, or whatever it might be. So leaders are not really focused on that. Um, but the, the, the problem of not doing that is having a huge impact. Uh, just, I just still am amazed, I suppose, by how many large organizations just, just don't have, as you suggest that uh, each significant role in the organization has a virtual bench of at least two people that I'm just not seeing it. Let's define virtual bench. Virtual bench means that in a role there, uh, let's say sales manager, we have other people that we have identified who we could recruit if that sales manager left. Okay, so it, it's 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 a virtual bench. Uh, these people, we we are maybe in conversation with them um, over a long period of time. Maybe we've got a very basic relationship with them, but we know we've got that depth because the problem is uh, when 
a when an when an organization has a person leave uh, what do they do? They go straight to the job board and they take whatever is available on the day. So we're trying to build an insurance policy really around that. And what you also suggest, Brad, is that we need each leader needs to have a clear successor. Yeah. Why a successor? So first of all, we said in the previous comment, we said that we want to have a virtual bench, which is uh, people who are, uh, within the industry, outside of the organisation that we believe can step into not every role, but just key roles. Okay, now we move to this question. Imagine for a moment that one of your key employees walks into your office and has got awesome news. They're just, they're just, they're just ecstatic. And they said, you're not going to believe it. I've just won $7 million in the lottery. Uh, and uh, my husband and I, we've, we're catching a first class class plane to Europe this afternoon. So today's my last day. I'm so excited. And how does that make you feel as a leader? Uh, and then um, you're kind of smiling. You say, well, that's great. But what do you do as soon as that person leaves? You're on the phone to every single person that you could possibly find in a desperate scramble to try and get anyone to help out because you know that it's you that's going to have to step into that role. So what we're really saying with this one, again, each leader in the business has appointed a clear successor who could replace them from within. We're not saying that that successor will step into that role. They won't get that job, okay? But they will step in in a, in a temporary basis. They're welcome to apply for the job, but they'll step in in a temporary basis to try and take the work off the leader. Um, it might be e handling emails or handling work or whatever it is. Um, but we're able to say, if this person in a key role leaves, that person will step in and, and help. But the funny thing is, having done that with leadership teams many times, what you're also doing is you're really identifying the high potentials in the organisation. You're identifying the people who have the capability, according to the general consensus at that point in time, to step in. And that creates some really fascinating questions after that. Mm. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a really interesting field succession. And uh, I mean, we always encourage them to, you know, at least be thinking about it, but ideally have it all documented and, and having the conversations and, and so people know exactly where they stand. Yeah. Um, again, my contention is that that is the, the reason that it's worth effort is consistent results and consistent growth. That's the impact that succession planning has on an organisation, consistency. So are there any books or leaders or people that inspire you, Brad? Uh, as having read the book, you will instantly be familiar. Uh, Jim Collins uh, and the work that he's done through the years, the, the, the enormous research work that he's done heavily influences what I've done. So huge fan of, of Jim Collins and his work. Outside of that, I would say Ryan Holiday uh, primarily Every leader I work with, I get to them to read this book. It's called Ego is the Enemy. Um, and I've already spoken about that earlier in this podcast. His second book that I'd ask leaders generally to read would be The Obstacle is the Way. So, so, so the first book, again, Ego is the Enemy, that's saying that um, the ego is the enemy of everything that you want and everything that you do and everything that you aspire to. The second book is really uh, The Obstacle is the Way. It's saying that what's the obstacle in your life right now? What's the thing that's stopping you getting where you want to go? Uh, well, that is the way forward. Uh, I don't really do it justice in any manner, uh, but they would be the, the two books slash the two leaders that I'd be going to. And if people want to know more about you and the work that you do, where should we direct them? So my website is evolutionpartners.com.au and I'm active on LinkedIn, as, as, as most people are. Really, my, my website is the, the first point. I'm, I, I regularly blog, like most people. Uh, I have a newsletter and so forth. But my website would be the first point of call. So any last words on leadership and made to thrive? I think it, it comes back to the beginning. You, you know, every, every person uh, wants to make their effort count for the most. How do you make your effort count for the most? It, it, it's, you know, it's a, it's a really fascinating question. People, people don't want to be stuck in the mundane. People, it, it, you know, 
people want to make their effort count for the most. Uh, I think in order to make your effort count for the most, you've got to understand the difference between good and great. You've got to spend more time in quadrant two. Uh, I, I think that the job of a leader is not to do other people's jobs. It's to do your job and to do it really well. Well, on that note, Brett, thank you so much for being on the Synergy and Leadership Podcast. Well, thanks for having me, Julian. It's, it's, been, it's been really enjoyable to chat and to dig into some of these topics. Thank you. Well, that wraps up episode 101 of the Synergy and Leadership Podcast, another awesome thought leader conversation for you to consider. This podcast is produced by my firm, Synergy Group, as a way to give back to the leadership community. So if you are interested in having a conversation with us, I encourage you to head on over to the Synergy Group website, tell us what you liked about the episode, tell us who you'd like us to interview, or tell us what sort of content you're actually interested in. And as always, if you are an iPhone user, please feel free, head on over to the Apple site and leave us a review. It really does help us build awareness of the show. In next week's episode, I speak with another thought leader, David Banger, who is the author of Digital is Everyone's Business, a guide to transition. So until then, love to hear what you think. Happy listening. Happy listening.